Please turn with me to the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation 20. We are looking at verses 11 through 15. Um, this is what was missing at the end of the, uh, the uh, vision of the seals, the vision of the trumpets, and the vision of the bowls. At the end of each of those visions, we got to the last seal, the last trumpet, the last bowl, and then we kind of reset and re- re-began the cycle as we were working on this intense spiral. And we were always left with the declaration of God's judgment, but without it being complete. And so we come to the completeness of God's judgment today. We have seen the Babylon the Great judged. We have seen the dragon and his minions judged. Today we will see humanity, death, and Hades judged as well. And so as we keep that in mind, let us look to these words in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we are here today to hear from you. I pray that you speak through me, that where my lips stammer and my tongue falters, that your spirit would empower the words to change the lives of your people. Grow within us an appreciation for your glory, your majesty, your justice, your mercy and your grace through these words. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people come to this particular passage and and are surprised. They have heard the phrase, God is love, so many times that they think that's all God is. God is love. And when you come to passages like this that express the fact that God will judge sin, they find themselves surprised. And the reason for that surprise is oftentimes we take passages or we take attributes of God like God is love. And we look at them to the exclusion of all of God's other attributes. Yes, I will affirm to you that God is love. The scriptures proclaim that God is love. The scriptures proclaim that God is also just. That God is also righteous. That God is also holy. And we cannot separate God's attributes from each other. They all exist together. They all exist at the same time. And His holiness shapes His love. His love shapes His righteousness and His justice. His justice shapes His grace and His mercy. And so we must not forget when we think about who God is, And it is good at times to contemplate the love of God. We cannot forget that that love exists together with his justice, his righteousness, and his holiness. 
We also get surprised at the idea that God would separate people based on some standard, a, a surprise that should not be there as we see in Exodus 34, 1 through 6, that God declares that he will forgive and that he will judge. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, which we will consider a little bit later on, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats based upon righteousness. This pattern of God judging the masses is a concept that shows up for us from the beginning of Scripture. The call on us in this passage today is to remember who God is and to ask ourselves the question, is my name written in the book of life? So as we consider that question, we today we will look at the throne and we will look at the books that are open. Now, before we dive into those two things, I do want to, to look at one kind of take a, a side road here, a rabbit trail, if you will, and look at a passage from First Thessalonians chapter four, beginning in verse 16. It says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Among the theological and sanctification issues that Paul had to deal with in the church in Thessalonica, he had to deal with some end time problems. In fact, he deals with some end times misconceptions in both first and second Thessalonians. And, and in dealing with these in the first letter to the Thessalonian church, he talks about when Jesus returns that the believers will be caught up with him in the sky. And Paul kind of stops right there and has left us with another large question in our discussion of the end times. What happens after we meet Christ in the air? As we considered the thousand-year binding of Satan last week, we did look at three views of that binding. Premillennial view says that, that there will be the joining of, of uh, Christians with Christ in the air, and then at some point after the Great Tribulation uh, and the thousand-year period of binding, Jesus will return to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Postmillennials believe that the thousand years is symbolic of a time of success in missions and evangelistic work and prosperity as the church is the main governing force upon the world for a period of time. And amillennials or inaugurated millennials believe that the thousand years is symbolic for the entire church age from Christ's return to heaven to his return to earth. And I bring these up because based upon your interpretation there, you have a view of this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 of what we call the rapture. And both the amillennial, the inaugurated millennial, and the postmillennial views point to a teaching that um, they will meet with Jesus in the sky and come immediately back to earth. Um, the premillennial view says that at some point before, during, or after the Great Tribulation, this meeting of Jesus in the sky will happen, and then Jesus and the church will return after the thousand years. Now, one of the keys to biblical interpretation is to try to understand what the original 
audience would have heard when Paul said these words. You know, I'm not saying you have to go learn Hebrew and Greek or get a seminary degree. God has provided ministers. He's provided commentators to help us understand the original context. And Paul was writing to a people who would have understood the Roman military practices. If you were a general or an emperor who was going out to battle in the Roman army, you would leave your city with your army and you would go to battle. And if you were victorious, you would return to the city victorious. And once you reached a certain part in the plains on the road out in front of the city, you would stop and the city would empty out and everybody would join you and there would be a great parade and procession back into the city. Think about Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Now, it was not a military procession in the normal way that we thought about it, but Jesus is coming in proclaiming victory over Satan and sin. And so people left the city of Jerusalem, met him on the plains, and in a parade-style event, followed him back in, singing his praises, lifting their voices in glory. That is the picture that we have with Christ's return. Yes, we will meet him in the sky. Yes, the dead will be raised. The dead in Christ will be raised. The life, the, those who are alive in Christ will be lifted up and they will meet Jesus in the sky. And then we will return with Jesus as he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. As we look at the context of Scripture, as we look at the context of Revelation, this is the picture that we see. Once Christ returns, the new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in. There will not be a period of time. And so if you were to ask me, is there a rapture? I would say yes, but it's a little bit different than, than what I grew up learning and being taught and with what many of us uh, have a tendency to think. Now, let me repeat something. I was going to say, let me repeat something I've said before, but that's typically the definition of repeat. We come to this with humility. As we look at the book of Revelation, there are a lot of things that have caused problems since the founding of the church, as I've mentioned with um, some of the bowls, some of the imagery that's in here. Scholars and preachers have been arguing about these since about 100 years after John wrote the book of Revelation, that very first generation after John wrote, have been talking about these things. And people have been right and people have been wrong, and we still don't know some of the answers to some of the imagery that John has, and we won't know some of the answers until Jesus returns. And so we come to this with humility. And as I, I told somebody in frustration one time, but it's actually become a catchphrase of mine, you and I may disagree on the meaning of the rapture. And one of us is wrong. And when it happens, neither one of us will care because we will be in the presence of Jesus. We will be reunited with him. We will be free of all the troubles and the trials of this world. And as long as we can agree on the majors, Jesus is coming back. We can disagree well on the minors, remembering that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So the rapture, yes, but... So back to today's passage, the throne. 
The first thing John sees in this vision is a great white throne in the heavens and all of humanity gathered around the throne. Now, who is seated on the throne? Because he says, I saw the one who was seated on the throne. Who is it that is seated on the throne? Well, this throne is most likely the throne from Revelation 4 and 5 that we saw as John looked at that throne, the, all the colors of the rainbow light in its greatest and shimmering and most beautiful glory emanated from the throne in such a way that John's eyes had to be averted and he described the infinite in finite language the best that he could. So this is God's throne. So we know that it is God seated upon the throne, but God is a triune God. He is Father, He is Son, He is Holy Spirit. And in chapters 4 and 5, we saw the triune God upon that throne, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ruling and and reigning from that throne. So which person of the Trinity is seated upon the throne? Well, according to John 5, the Father has given somebody the task of judging humanity. And that somebody is the Son. So most likely when John says, I saw the great white throne and him who was seated upon it, John saw his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, seated upon the throne. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important mainly because humans will be judged by a fellow human. There would be the temptation, it would be a bad temptation, but there would be the temptation at that great throne judgment that if it were the Father or the Spirit seated upon the throne carrying out the judgments of God, the temptation would be to say, well, you just don't know what it's like to be me. You don't know what it's like to be human. You are spirit and you are to be worshipped in spirit and truth, but you've never walked in my shoes. You've never been tempted as I have. So Jesus sits on the throne in Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 tells us that Jesus can sympathize with you and me in our weakness because he has been tempted in the same ways that you and I have. But... He didn't sin. There is one who knows the human struggle against sin, who has been successful against in the human struggle against sin, and he is the one who will judge those who do sin. What a glorious news that is, that, that we will be on equal footing before God, that a human will judge us. But this throne is called great, to remind us that it isn't merely a human who will judge us. This is God, the second person of the Trinity, seated upon the throne who judges us. And that'll come into play a little bit later as we consider God's omniscience, his infinite knowledge in being able to judge every human being who has ever lived. Seated upon the throne of the sovereign creator, King of all creation is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As he sits there, we are told that earth and sky flee from his presence. He will be there in all of his awesome divine majesty. Earth and sky will flee from his presence for two reasons. Number one, so that humans no longer have anywhere to hide before God. Remember at the opening of the seventh seal, those who were unrepentant called out for the mountains and the rocks 
and the earth to fall upon them so that they would not be face to face with the glory of a holy God. Here, the rocks, the sky, all of creation flees away so that we cannot have anywhere to hide when we stand before God. The second reason they flee away is because as this happens, God is remaking earth and heaven. The new heavens and the new earth or the renewed heavens and the renewed earth, which we'll talk a little bit more about next week as we get into chapter 21, are being made. A place that is no longer under the weight, the groaning of sin, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. So seated upon the throne is the one who will judge. And who gathers before the throne? Well, in short, it is every human to to have ever lived. Now that statement right there should give you pause to make you think of the awesomeness, the greatness of our God. Every human to have ever lived. We passed a a milestone this week in human population. We crossed 8 billion people living at one particular time. That's today 8 billion people. That means that the number of people who have ever lived, we've been growing at a pretty quick rate since the year negative one or one, however you count from BC to AD. They, they, they guessed that there were about 230 million people living at the time that Jesus walked the earth, up to 8 billion today. Every single human being will be gathered before the throne on that day. That should boggle the mind. It should lead us to worship our great God because he will judge every single one of those people in his omniscience, in his infinite knowledge, which we'll consider here in a couple moments. Just the power of God to gather every person who has ever lived, to regather their molecules, to to pull those bodies that have fallen to the depths of the sea, that have been covered in avalanches and earthquakes, that have been that have been burned up in volcanic eruptions, every single molecule will be regathered, remade, and people will be re, reincarnated, but not in that Eastern religion sense of the word. They will be re-enfleshed, and they will stand before God's throne. That is the God we worship. He will do that and is powerful to do that. Not only is every hair counted, but every person to have ever lived has been counted and has been remembered by the God of the universe. So we see the throne and the one seated upon the throne and and then a group of attendants brings a stack of books. Now, this has got to be an immense stack of books because it has these books have recorded in them every single deed Every single thought, every single action, every single word that every single person to have ever lived has done. Think about your thoughts, think about your words, think about your deeds, and try to start counting them. And imagine that every one for every person is written in a book. Now, these books are symbolic. These books, there are not likely not literally going to be a stack of books, an infinite library carried out. These books are symbolic of something about God. And in that something about God is that he is omniscient. He knows all things. 
He knows everything that has happened in your life. He knows everything that is going on in the lives of all 8 billion people right now. He knows everything that all of those 8 billion people have done from the time they were born to the time they die. And he knows that for every person who has ever lived. We talk about God forgetting our sin. It's not like he sits there in his mind and erases everything we've done wrong. It just means that he will not bring punishment on us because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He still remembers everything you and I have done, both for his glory and for our own. And he will weigh those things according to the balance, to the scale of his holiness. And as he does this, we, will un- we have to understand that this judgment will be fair. We always cry out when we talk about God's judgment. Well, that's not fair. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to God, we do not want fair. We want grace. We want mercy. See, God in his infinite knowledge, as I walk up to God and I stand there, he's going to ask me some questions. He's going to, based upon the Ten Commandments, he's going to say, did you put other gods of this world, things like sex, money, or power, before the Creator God of the universe? I'm only going to have one answer I can give. He's going to say, did you have idols, graven images, things like cars, or homes, or people that you worshipped in the place of God? And I'm only going to have one answer. He's going to say, did you live a life that reflected the glory and dignity of God as he made you in his image? Or did you sully and make filthy the name of God as you carried it upon you in this world? Did you remember the pattern of life that God instituted in creation? And did you seek the rest and worship that God calls you to merely one day a week? Did you respect and honor all the authority that God placed in your life, whether you agreed with it or not, or regardless of whether or not you liked their politics? Did you treat other people with great worth and respect their life, avoiding the destruction of their life and even of their reputation? Did you treat your fellow humans as images of God and not as objects of your desires? Did you honor God's design for marriage as a picture of his relationship to his children? Did you have regard for the personal property of others and live in such a way as to show respect for that property? Did your words serve to lift up and edify or to tear down and destroy through falsehood? Were you content with what God gave you? rather than desiring the relationships, the possessions of others in such a way that you wanted to hurt them to get those things. You and I will all stand before God and answer questions along those lines. And we will have only one answer to give. Woe is me. I deserve to be undone. For my lips are tainted with sin. My thoughts are tainted with sin and my actions are tainted with sin as I stand before a holy God. There will be no hedging. There will be no saying, but you don't understand. There will be no way to deflect the gaze of God as we stand there before him and he runs through his law. 
But there is hope in this passage because it's not just those books that are opened. There's a second book or a a, a book which will be cross-referenced with these books and it is called the Book of Life. Earlier in the book of Revelation, this book of life was given its full name, the book of life of the lamb who was slain. We are written in that book from before the foundation of the world and our entry into that book is marked by our repentance. Our honesty with God now saying, Lord, I cannot answer any of those questions in a way that saves me from your wrath, from your judgment. I need your help to do that. I need your son. I need the righteousness of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in order to be able to stand before you and not be undone by my sin. And if you live in that way, this book becomes a grace for you. This book of the lamb who was slain, this book of life, becomes a book of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. It is a record of those who have submitted to God's call to believe and to profess. Names cannot be erased from this book. Once they are there, it is a permanent writing. And those who are able to stand there and have their name found in the book of life will not suffer the second death which is the lake of fire. So we see that this judgment is fair. God will sift us according to his law. He will weigh us and find us wanting. And then by grace, some will find their names written in the book of life. Another thing we like in our culture, in our world today, is the idea of inclusivity. This judgment is inclusive as well. And I saw the dead, great and small. Your economic power will not help you that day. Your wealth will not help you that day. Your good looks will not help you that day. How important you were in the world in which you lived will not help you that day. Everybody will stand on equal footing before God, judged and weighed according to the law of God. Many people look at this and say, you know, that is not fair. Unfortunately for many, it will be perfectly fair. Paul reminds us in Romans 1 that everything we need to know about God that leaves us without excuse is, cl- is clear, is plain in creation. There is enough information about God written on our hearts as we have the law written upon our hearts and written upon creation to let us know that we need to seek out salvation from the righteous God around us. But what do you and I do? What do all humans do? We go to the trees and say, if I treat you well enough, will you offer me salvation? We go to the animals and say, if I treat you well enough, will you offer me salvation? We go to money, we go to work, we go to degrees. And we say, if I pursue each of you well enough, will you offer me salvation? But where we go most of the time is into our own heart. We all think as human beings, 
that we are going to stand before God and say, I'm good enough, let me in. And God laughs. In Mark 10, 17 through 27, a young man comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to secure eternal life? And Jesus says, well, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't covet. Honor your father and your mother. And the guy goes, man, that's great. I've been doing that since I was a little kid. And Jesus says, well, there's one more thing you lack. Sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and follow me. And what does Mark tell us happened? The man went away sad because he had great regard for his possessions. His righteousness did not outweigh his idolatry of everything that he had. Brothers and sisters, every thought, every action, every word, that has violated God's law will be brought to account on that day. And the only hope that we have is this book of life of the Lamb that was slain. As we consider this day, which is coming, which will arrive in God's time, nothing can stop it as we saw last week, not even the beasts, not even the dragon, nothing can stop this great day of the Lord. As we approach, as we consider that day, we must be sure of one simple but important thing. Is your name written in that book? Have you placed your hope firmly and securely in the work of Jesus? Or are you still hoping that you're good enough? We are called to live a life of repentance and to trust in Jesus' finished work and in his work alone. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you for these words, for this reminder. You are the omniscient, infinitely knowing God seated upon the throne. And each and every one of us will stand before you one day to answer the questions. Have we kept your law? Have we glorified you? Lord, may you work in our lives so that we might know for sure that our name is written in the book of life. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to a life of the pursuit of holiness. Lead us to a life of utter and complete rest in the work of Jesus and in his work alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, as you seek to walk in holiness and repentance and in trust, take this blessing upon you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.